Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be looking at chapter 12 and verses 1 through 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12 and verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 12 and verses 1 to 12. Brothers and sisters, please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season had came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Him, but feared the people, for they perceived that He had told the parable against them. So they left Him and went away. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Our text picks up this morning again on that Tuesday before our Lord's crucifixion. And it is here that we are reintroduced to that parabolic style of teaching that our Lord employed back in Mark chapter 4 in which He used to, to teach the apostles about the nature of the kingdom of God. But now, having just read this additional parable aloud, one thing ought to stand out to us from all the other parables that make this one in particular unique. And that unique element that you should have picked up on is the fact that this parable, to some degree, is understood by the chief priests by the scribes and the elders. For we are told in verse 12 that after hearing the parable, they wanted to arrest Jesus because they perceived that He had told this parable against them. And this should have immediately stood out to us. This should immediately cause us to raise our eyebrows because the purpose of parables was to hide truth from those whom the secrets of the kingdom of God 
was not given to. Jesus, in fact, taught this Himself at the end of the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, verse 12. Jesus said that He taught this so that they may see but not perceive, that they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is not the only anomaly that we see in the parable today. Because the reason why they were able to perceive to some degree that this parable was directed towards them was that Jesus actually begins to explain the parable to them. Something that He never did in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees before. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, we are told this, With many such parables... Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without parable, but privately to whom? To His own disciples He explained everything. Now, one reason why I think that Jesus reveals to some degree what this parable means to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders was in order to to cement or to solidify even more their just condemnation before God, which in part was due to their ignorance of the Scriptures. The Scriptures that these men were made stewards of. This Word of God, which detailed the history of Israel, a history that these men ought to have been well acquainted with. We've all heard that saying, haven't we? That if you're ignorant of your history, you are liable to repeat it. And this is exactly what these men have done in their persecution of Christ. They did not learn from the sins of their fathers. And in fact, now they multiply those sins by seeking to put to death God's only begotten Son. And it is because of this that destruction was going to come to the nation. And that kingdom that they long anticipated, that kingdom that they have longed for and and wanted for so long, was now going to be taken from them. And it was going to be given not to a nation, but to all nations, which comprised people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who were going to be brought together as one new people of God. Right? Brought together by whom? The, the chief cornerstone who is Christ. And so it is with this in mind then that we are going to look at our parable this morning. And we are going to break down our parable then under, under three main points. And the three main points are these. First, God's long-suffering with Israel. First is God's long-suffering with Israel. Second, God's Son rejected. God's Son rejected. And point number three, God's marvelous plan executed. God's marvelous plan executed. So point number one, God's long-suffering with Israel. Please look with me again at verse one. And He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower, leased it to the tenants, 
and went into another country. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not just coming up with this parable out of thin air. But rather what Jesus is doing, and what we will see is He is reaching back to the Old Testament Scriptures. And He is actually pulling from Isaiah chapter 5. A a text that these men ought to have been familiar with. And it's Isaiah 5 then, which is really the, the basis of this parable. And so I would like us to all turn to Isaiah chapter 5 together, that we might read this together. Isaiah chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 1 of Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. So this is what we read. Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. This text reveals to us Judgment against Israel, who in this text in Isaiah 5, is Israel is the vineyard there. And why are we told that, the, that this vineyard, or why are we told that Israel is going to be destroyed? Well, we're told that God had set this vineyard on a, on a choice and, and fertile hill. We're told in Isaiah 5 that He, he dug it. He cleared it of stones. He, he planted it with choice vines. He even put a, a watchtower in the midst of it and made a wine press with the expectation that it, would, that it would yield the fruit of the vine. And yet, what did, it, what did our Lord find when He came looking for the fruit of the vine? We're told that it yielded wild grapes instead of grapes, which is... It's really figurative language, isn't it? God is saying, when I came looking, I came looking for faith and repentance and obedience and righteousness. Yet what did you yield? What do I find amongst the nation? I found unbelief. I found sin of every kind. I found unrighteousness. And I found bloodshed in my nation. And as a result, He through the prophet Isaiah declares now He is going to tear down His vineyard. He is going to lay His vineyard to waste. 
Do we see this is God's judgment song against Israel? And Jesus takes this judgment song in Isaiah 5 and He uses it in His parable today in order that these wicked men might draw the conclusion that He is speaking about them. That He is speaking about their wicked ways. And that they might see that the judgment of God is going to fall upon them as well. This is why Jesus draws back to Isaiah 5. For the man in our text today, the owner of the vineyard is the father. The tenants are the wicked leaders of Israel. Throughout all of history, and even those leaders who were standing before Jesus that day. And so in our parable, Jesus recounts for Israel the entirety of their history. He tells them in this parable all that God has done for them. Every advantage that He has given to them. Jesus says this, this man, he planted a vineyard and he, he put a fence around it. Right? Jesus is saying, God chose you from all the nations of the earth to be His people. Right? He, he, he put a fence around you. The, the law of God would set you apart from every other nation in the world. He says this man then dug a pit for the wine press. What would a pit for a wine press do? Someone would stomp on the grapes and it would, it would catch the fruit of the vine. And so here it's to represent the, the sacrifices that Israel was commanded to make, which was likewise a drink offering that the priests were to offer up to God for the sins of the people daily, which no other nation had but Israel. We likewise are told this man built a watchtower, which I think is is he's speaking of the temple that God had constructed for the people. Because we're told it's in the temple. The priests watched over the people day and night as they performed their priestly functions. And so God placed the nation of Israel under the the spiritual care and rule of these leaders. Just as God had placed the vineyard under the care of these tenants. And these tenants were supposed to take care of God's vineyard. They were supposed to give Him what it yielded. Just as Israel and the leaders of Israel were to watch over God's people and were to do what God had commanded them. Right? They were to be the leaders of Israel. They were to teach the people. They were to, to lead the people in worship. They were to pray for the people. They were to be holy examples for the people. And yet, what resulted? What resulted from all that God did for the people? From every advantage that He had given the people? They continually rebelled against God. And how did God respond to Israel? Did God destroy Israel and wipe them from the history books forever? No. No, He didn't. Oh, how long-suffering our God was to the nation of Israel. And yet they took advantage of our Lord's patience and they acted wickedly towards Him. This is exactly what our Lord is describing in verses 2-5. through Look with me once more there, please. When the season came, he, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. 
And again, he, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. When it was time to collect the fruit of the vineyard, what happened? Instead of those tenants giving to the owner of the vineyard what was rightfully his, they treated his servants viciously and with great malice. They beat, we're told. They struck. They treated shamefully. They killed his servants. And I ask you, is this exact, not exactly what Israel did to the prophets who were sent to them time and time again? When God was looking for grapes, when He came looking for faith and love and obedience, He found wild grapes. He found unbelief, idolatry, immorality. And what did God do? Did He destroy Israel? No. He sent servant after servant. He sent prophet after prophet in order to call them to repentance, in order to warn Israel, to plead with Israel, to tell Israel what would happen if they continued in their utter faithlessness. And yet time and time again, they rejected the prophets. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, the prophets were but God's mercies to the nation. He kept giving them mercy after mercy. A mercy under which God was under no obligation to give. And yet He continued to give them prophet after prophet. And all they did was turn their nose up to God. And after the nation's first refusal to heed the call of the prophets, who amongst us would have blamed God from extinguishing them from the face of the earth? And yet, what a God. What a God. Rich in mercy. Long-suffering for the sake of the elect. Sending prophet after prophet. Amos, Jeremiah, Uriah, Micaiah, Zechariah. Men who were forced to flee. Men who were beaten. Men who were killed for rebuking the sin of the nation. And yet what we see is a God who is gracious a God who is merciful, a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions according to His infinite greatness. We see a God who provides opportunity after opportunity to the nation. A God who has given them sign after sign, calling them to repentance so that they might see their sin and turn to faith in God. Sign after sign that they might recognize when the Messiah came, who He was. And yet all of those signs, all of those mercies went unnoticed. And yet God's patience, as they tested it foolishly, time and time again, is a patience that will not be extended forever with the wicked. There will come a time when that well of opportunity, when that well of light that has been given to them will dry up. And when that well dries up, judgment will come. And as we read this, and as we understand the end that befits the ungodly, our hearts are to break like our Lord's did. And just as He wept over Israel, 
saying, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have, who have been sent to it, brothers and sisters, we ought to weep likewise for much of the state of the church today. For this parable likewise tells our history as well. For our Lord has, has planted a choice vineyard, which is His church. He has given to the church ministers to be stewards of the Word of God. right? To, to proclaim God's Word. To teach, to correct, to reproof, to feed the sheep. And yet, what do we see? Time and time again, men fail and fall in their stewardship. Instead of preaching faithfully and living obediently and walking humbly, what do we see? Right? They have given in to idolatry and immorality and unrighteousness and self-righteousness and greed like these Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders who incurred a great punishment for their sin. And yet, how many today have not learned from the annals of history? We still have not learned. And for those men who, who do herald God's Word faithfully, who do continue to call people to repentance, who continue to teach them of what it is that holiness and righteousness is, who continue to point them to Christ each and every week, you still have many people in the pew to whom this parable tells your history as well. A history of unrighteousness. A history of no concern for godliness. A history of not spending any time thinking about the message that the minister has preached that Sunday. Spending no time chewing on the Word of God throughout the week that you have just heard. Spending no time praying to God that He would implant that Word that was just proclaimed into your hearts. And instead, you go about your life when you walk out of here with the Word having absolutely no effect upon you. And even though God has given to you everything, He has granted to you every advantage. What do you do with it? What do you return to God? Wild grapes? Brothers and sisters, we must know that God will not be mocked. His long-suffering and His patience with those who proclaim to be Christian and who sit in the church will not extend forever. It may appear to some for a time that God is sleeping. It may appear for a time that He is distant. That He is unaware as we see the unrighteous get away with sin before our eyes each and every day. But know this, God is very present. God today is walking amongst His churches. He sees every heart here today. He knows your every thought. He sees your every action. And what will we do when He returns? And He sees disobedience and unbelief. What will we do? Like Israel, God is going to come and collect just as the vineyard owner sent his son to come and collect. God is going to come and collect from his ministers and from the members of his church alike. And he's going to come. And he's going to come looking for faith. Looking for repentance. He's going to come looking for hearts and lives 
that display a burning and passionate love for Him. And if it is not found, all who put God to the test, all who, who want to test God thinking that He will not execute His justice for sin, will end up realizing that they are going to befall the very same judgment that Israel did. And yet, even though Israel continued to reject the prophets, and although there may be some of you here today who continue to reject the prophets as they are proclaimed to you in the Word, our Lord still sent His final messenger. Our Lord still sent one final hope to the people. And this leads us into point number two, which is God's Son rejected. Look with me please at verses 6-8. through eight. We read this, He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally He sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. But those ten had said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. After the owner sent servant after servant and they were shamefully treated, the owner of the vineyard only had one more person to send. That was his beloved son. The owner of the vineyard said, they're going to respect my son. He's my son. When he comes, he's going to come in in my authority. They will recognize this. But instead of respecting the son, instead of recognizing the son's authority, what we see is those wicked tenants seeing it as an opportunity to take or to, to steal the inheritance for themselves by putting to death this rightful heir and the son of the, vine, uh, of the vineyard owner. And isn't this, brothers and sisters, what we see going on with Israel here in our text today? And is this not what we will see happen in just a few short days from this Tuesday? They are looking to, to kill the heir so that they might have the inheritance. We are told that the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees were seeking to destroy Jesus after He cleansed the temple. In our text today, we are told that they were seeking to arrest Jesus. Last week, you remember, they tried to trap Jesus so that they might lay hands on Him. You see, just as the wicked tenants conspired against the owner of the vineyard and the son, so too the Jewish leaders conspire against God and His only begotten Son. And so I want us to see that they are, they are both guilty of premeditated murder. Right? This was not a, a split-second uh, decision. This was not something that was just a, a repulsive, uh, an impulsive reaction. But rather, this is something they thought out. This is something they had determined to do They sought out to destroy Christ for their own benefit. Like the prophets of old, Christ came to call them to repentance and to faith. To warn them about what will happen if they rejected God's revelation. But the Jewish leaders, instead of learning, instead of learning from the history books, instead of learning from the Scriptures and heeding the prophet's call, and repenting and turning to God in faith, what we see is that they will repeat history. 
by seeking to kill God's only begotten Son. But woe to them, brothers and sisters, for in seeking to kill God's Son, what they are seeking to do is kill God's final messenger to them. The author of the book of Hebrews opens in chapter 1, verse 1, saying this, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Do we see that in seeking to destroy Christ, they thought if we kill Christ, we can have things our way. Not realizing that in seeking to kill Christ, they were going to likewise kill their only hope for reconciliation with God and eternal salvation. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And yet, brothers and sisters, this, this same reaction to kill and destroy the Son by these wicked Jewish leaders, symbolized by the wicked tenants, right? saying, let's get rid of Him so that we can live as we want. Is this not the same reaction that we see today in our own society? Aren't others today saying, let us rid society of Christ so that we may live how we want to? Think about how they are attacking Christ in the universities today. Right? As, as men and women go off there, that's really where they formulate a lot of what they will go on to believe for the rest of their lives. And so men and women say, well, let us attack Christ there. If we attack Him there, then we can begin to, to kill Christ in the hearts of the youth. And as they grow up, Christless, they're going to raise Christless children. And over time, and after generation after generation, we will be able to finally put to death Christ. And yet what they don't understand, what they don't see, what they don't realize is the significance of what they are trying to do. Because in trying to kill Christ in their hearts, in trying to kill Christ in society, what they are doing is condemning themselves and all who follow them to eternal perdition. Right? These, these wise university professors are blind guides leading the blind. In, in fact, what they are doing is they are orchestrating mass spiritual suicide. And so, brothers and sisters, I beg of you, do not let Christ be killed in your heart. And you say to me, brother, that will never happen. But remember the history of Israel. Israel was not always faithless. Israel was not always disobedient. There was a time in which they were prosperous and faithful. There was a time in which they obeyed God, yet over time, what did they do? They allowed sin to creep in. They co-mingled themselves with, the, with those whom the Lord told them not to have anything to do with. And is this not the same today? Right, the, the Lord tells His church, do not be friends with the world. 
He tells us to not treasure earthly possessions. He tells us not to walk on this earth with our minds here, but rather with our minds in heaven. And yet, how many of us have witnessed ourselves so many people who have neglected their spiritual needs being wrapped up in the world and have over time gone astray and who have silenced Christ in their soul. We've seen numerous people. And this happens slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. First it goes one day, two days. Then over weeks, right? We stop, we stop reading. We stop praying. We stop pursuing righteousness. And although you may show up to church, although you may go through the motions, in your private life, all you yield is wild grapes. And if that is you, then you must know that if you allow Christ to be killed in your heart, if you allow Christ to be silenced in your soul, then you have no one left to reconcile you to God. It is the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent into the world to reconcile us to Him. Even after many rejections, He has demonstrated His love to us each and every week through the outward call of the Gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, I beg of you, do not deny Christ's love for you, which is found in the proclamation of the Gospel, because no one or nothing can love you as Christ loves you. The world can never love you like Christ loves you. Your spouse cannot love you as Christ loves you. Your parents will never love you as Christ loves you. Your children cannot love you as Christ loves you. As Charles Spurgeon says concerning Christ's love for His church, if you reject Him, He answers you with tears. If you kill Him, He dies to redeem. If you wound Him, He bleeds out cleansing. If you bury Him, He rises again to bring us to resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. If you would only repent of your sin, turn to Christ, becoming His bride and no others, then, brothers and sisters, you can come to know that the guilt of your sin has been forgiven and that you have life everlasting with the Lord. And yet, likewise, as, as Spurgeon warns all people, Christ is God's ultimatum to you. Christ is God's ultimatum. Nothing else remains if Christ is refused. If you reject Christ as Israel rejected Christ, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And all that remains for you is judgment, the same judgment that befell Israel. And this takes us then to our third and final point, which is God's marvelous plan executed. Look with me, please, starting at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Here Jesus explains the parable by quoting 
Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, showing just as how these wicked tenants rejected uh, the, the son of the vineyard owner, these wicked uh, leaders of Israel likewise have rejected the Son of God. Right? Israel for far too long has experienced immunity from God's holy indignation over their continual defiance. And yet, what do we know about Israel's history? It will come to an end, for in 70 AD, right, the temple will be destroyed. But that is because the builders, right, those who are to be building upon the foundation, the leaders of Israel, for far too long, have been building upon another foundation. And no other foundation can be laid or built upon other than Christ. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And Christ alone is the chief cornerstone of the church which was planned by God. I want you to see what happened to Israel in the taking away of the kingdom and giving it to another was not plan B. It wasn't plan B. Israel's rejection of God did not force God to change course. It did not force God to change redemptive history. But rather, in sending the Son into the world to die for sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to make up now the true Israel of God, was God's plan A always. That was always God's plan. And this is what the apostles declare in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Here we are told this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And in seeing this, in seeing that everything that has occurred has occurred according to God's plan perfectly, it ought to cause our eyes to marvel at the wondrous nature of our God. How marvelous it is that that God would lay for us as the foundation of the church His own beloved Son. How, How marvelous it is that demonstration of love that was exhibited in the sending of the Son to die for sinners, which was a demonstration of the infinite love of God for us. How marvelous likewise it was how that plan was executed. It was in death that God has brought life. It is in the weakness of the cross by which the world thought Christ was defeated. It is in that cross, in that event, that in fact, Christ has overcome the world. How marvelous that ought to be in our eyes. We ought to marvel that God uses weak men to proclaim a powerful word by which He uses it to grip the hearts of sinners. How we ought to marvel at regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who works within us to will and work after the good pleasure of God. We ought to marvel and how we were once dead sinners, and yet now we've been brought to life in the first resurrection. And we ought to marvel at the second resurrection, which will come when Christ returns in the clouds. 
And it is these marvelous works of God that we proclaim here each and every week. And so as we go away from here today, we ought to answer for ourselves. When, when God sends His servant to proclaim His Word to us, how do I respond? Do I listen? Do I learn? Do I love the Word? Do I respond in faith and obedience? Do I produce fruit? Do I welcome the correction of God's Word? Or do I reject the Word of God? Do I deny God in my works? Do I despise correction in my heart? I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that there are really two reactions we have to the Word of God. It is repentance and faith, or it is a hardening ourselves against God. And what do we see in our text today? The Jewish leaders hardened themselves against God. And they were seeking to arrest Him. Right? They, they hardened themselves to His work. And if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare those who have been engrafted into Him if we continue to persist in unbelief. And so what will you do, brothers and sisters, knowing that Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church? Let us bless God for Christ. Let us preach Christ. Let us obey Christ. Let us build upon no other foundation than Christ, who is the the stone of greatest value, that precious cornerstone, who supports us and sustains us and unites us as all other stones decay. They wither. They break. But the stone that we depend on for our justification, for our sanctification, for our glorification, is a stone that is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We pray, Father, that You would help us to build upon no other foundation than Christ. That here at Covenant Baptist Church, we would be a people who obey Christ and who profess Christ and who love Christ above all else. And yet, Father, we we turn to You for Your strength and for Your power, for Your wisdom and for Your might. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.